If you'd like, you can open in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, it's somewhere in the first chapter of your Bible. Let me ask God's help now as we turn to his word. God, I ask that the blessing of Abraham that points to and then pours forth from Jesus Christ would find us and refresh us. We pray this in your name. Amen. When I look back over my long, long life, I am I'm surprised by the impact that biographies have had on me. Um, second only to communing with God in worship and scripture and prayer and fellowshipping with God's people. Second only to these things, nothing has had a greater impact on me in terms of inspiring, encouraging, and guiding than reading about the lives of others. We, we love biographies, I think, at least one reason, is because our lives are kind of trapped in the immediacy of the moment and we don't know the future. And so we don't know how the pieces connect. And when you can pick up a biography, it's a whole life there in a hundred or two hundred or a thousand pages. And at the very least, over the course of some weeks or months, you can see how it unfolds and you can see how the ups and downs and the unexpected turns and the valleys and the peaks, you can see how they, they, they come together to form a story that's meaningful and has purpose. And when we we read biographies, we think, well, maybe the pieces of my life that maybe don't make any sense, maybe they're all going to connect like this too. And so we read biographies because they inspire us and they give us hope. Do you know that, that being inspired by biographies is actually biblical? It's not just something the Bible says is okay to do. It's actually something the Bible commands. So in the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 11, the writer recounts the, the life, very narrow snippets, focusing on the element of faithfulness, but he, he recounts the life of several heroes from the Old Testament, little biographies. And then in chapter 12, he says, look at this great cloud of witnesses and be motivated. And then in chapter 13, he writes, this is Hebrews 13, verse 7, he writes, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That's a biblical mandate to biography. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Think about their life. Think about what it was. Think about the outcome, right? What was the payoff? And then imitate their faith. Don't imitate their success. Imitate their faith. Biographies are gifts from God, especially the lives of saints in Scripture. I think you could make a case that one of the most influential lives in terms of impacting our modern world, one of the most influential biographies, if you will, is the life of Abraham. His bio is recorded in the Bible in Genesis from chapters 12 through chapters 25. Over half of the world's population, 
roughly 4 billion people, refer to this lone man who lived 4,000 years ago in Ur of the Chaldeans, over half the world's population refers to Abraham as father, Father Abraham. Though with significant differences, Christians, Jews, and Muslims all trace their lineage, whether ethnically, spiritually, or both, back to this lone man from ancient Babylon, Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. Now, for Christians, Abraham's life is actually set forth as a life we must study and imitate. St. Paul holds up Abraham in Romans 4 as the example of a life of faith and hope par excellence. Paul refers to those in Romans 4.12 who, quote, walk in the footsteps of Abraham. Do you know how to do that? Do you know what that means? Paul goes on in Galatians to actually say that if, if you have put your trust in Jesus and he's your Lord, you're actually Abraham's child. Galatians 3.29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So whether for historical and social reasons, you just would like to know a little bit more about world civilization, how things came to be as they are, or whether for spiritual reasons, you'd like to know what God is up to in the life of Abraham, in the life of Christians, whatever the reason may be, it seems to me that it's wise for all of us to familiarize ourselves with the life of this man from Ur of the Chaldeans. So as a church, we'll spend the next few months studying his life, asking specifically, what does it teach us about a life lived under God? What does it teach us about the way of faith? So as you've turned in your Bibles to Genesis 12, we see in Genesis 12 where Abraham's story begins. Now, Genesis is the first book in the Bible, and it's 50 chapters long. It's pretty long, but it really breaks into two nice parts. The first part, chapters 1 through 11, we studied last year at this time. The first part is really the beginning of the story of the world. Things begin in glory. They descend swiftly into chaos and sin. Genesis 12 through 50 is then the beginnings of the story of salvation. And it all centers on this one man's family, Abraham. For the rest of Genesis, we're either reading about Abraham, his son Isaac, his grandson Jacob, or his great-grandson Joseph. It's all about Abraham's family and the promises of salvation that are going to run through this family. Now, one way to think of this in relation to the Bible and church history and your life is to think of Abraham standing at the great headwaters of the river of salvation. So everything else flowing through the Bible, flowing through church history, flowing into this church, flowing up to the shoreline of your life, should you choose to jump into it, is all downstream from what we read in Genesis 12. You could argue that Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3 are the most significant passage of Scripture between Adam and Christ. Because everything else happening is God keeping these promises. So take the exodus from Egypt. Big event, right? God delivers Israelites from Egypt, from bondage, so they can go to the promised land. That's not a new event. That's in keeping with God's promise to Abraham that his ancestors, his offspring, will inherit the land. 
Or how about when Israel is delivered from captivity in Babylon later and they're brought back to the promised land? That's God keeping his promises to Abraham. Or how about when God sends his own son in the likeness of man? The very first verse in the New Testament, Matthew 1 verse 1, it reads like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which opened the way for the blessings of Abraham to come to all people, his whole life is God keeping promises to Abraham. Abraham's life points to Jesus. Then how about the end of the Bible? Revelation 7, the scene everybody loves, where people from every tribe, every tongue, every race, every nation, they're gathered worshiping people from all nations. Revelation 7, 9. This is simply God's fulfillment of his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, when he says, through you, I will bless all the families of the earth. And then Paul actually says in Galatians, I want you to hear this. Paul says the scripture, Paul's referring to the Old Testament. He was referring to the passage we're going to look at in a moment. Paul says the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the nations by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul is saying that the passage we're about to look at at the beginning of Abraham's life is preaching the gospel to Abraham. So what does all this this mean for us? It, It just means this, that when you, when you look to understand this biography, this man's life, you're looking at the headwaters of a river that rushes through the rest of Scripture, that rushes through church history, that really does come through this church and this church's faithfulness. And right now it washes up on the shores of your life. And it's saying to you, like, this is life. This is the promised line. Do you want to jump in? John Calvin writing about five years ago, I love this, of this passage of Abraham. Calvin wrote, Abraham is an example of the vocation of us all. So we're going to study his life over the next few months. Now, the first episode in his life, it unfolds from Genesis 12, verse 1 through 9, but it has this little prologue right at the end of chapter 11. And in this prologue, we're told that Abraham comes from Terah. That's his father's name. Now, now this may seem like kind of a boring thing to pass over, you know, all these genealogies in the Bible. But let me just see, show you the note this strikes. What the careful reader, the careful reader of Genesis is supposed to see is that Abraham is actually connected backwards all the way to Adam and this promised line coming through Seth. So Adam and Eve, just follow me here. Adam and Eve, they have two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain murders Abel. God then grants them a son that replaces Abel named Seth. And Seth is going to be the the line through which God keeps this promise he made to Eve when he says to Eve in Genesis 3.15, your offspring will crush the head of the serpent. So they have Seth. Seth, down his line, leads to Noah. One of Noah's sons is named Shem. At the beginning of the top of Uh, Genesis 11, the beginning of that, if you look at it in your Bible, it's the genealogy of Shem. You go down about nine generations and Shem gives birth through all his sons to Terah. And then you pick up at Genesis 11, verse 27, and we're told that Abraham is 
the son of Terah. So the careful reader of Genesis, the little Hebrew girl who's learning this 3,000 years ago, she's thinking, oh man, oh, this is that line that's carrying this sledgehammer that's going to pulverize the head of the serpent. This is the line that's going to war against evil. Something's going to happen here. So that's what the reader needs to feel when we hear that Abraham comes from Terah. Now this little prologue just before um, chapter 12 starts, it also strikes two notes of tension or two notes that, that, that are, you might say they're in dissonance with what you expect. And the first note is when we're told that, that Abraham is from Ur of the Chaldeans. In verse 28, we read that Abraham's brother, Haran, died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, this is um, modern-day Iraq. They've actually found this city. They've excavated it. They did it in the 20s and 30s. And they found in Ur of the Chaldeans um, the remains of an ancient ziggurat or a temple to a moon god. And so, and we know also from the book of Joshua that Abraham comes from a family of moon worshipers. So here's this chosen line that's going to strike the head of the serpent. And we find them in Babylon worshiping the moon. Abraham's wife, Sarai, her, her name in the original language, is the name of a consort of the moon god. So Abraham's a pagan. That's the first note of tension. The other note comes in this tension between Abraham's name, what it means, and the state of his wife that she's barren. You might have noticed Abraham is called Abram at first. Um, later his name will be changed to Abraham. Abram means great father. Abraham means great father of a multitude. Now, now here's the tension. The guy's name is great father. And then we read in verses 29 and 30, the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And now notice the emphasis. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. And so when the reader comes to Genesis 12, and this, this headwater just kind of burst out from the ground onto the surface, it is not a note of confidence in humanity that's ringing in our ears. The promised line has wandered into a Babylonian captivity to idolatry. Terah's son Haran has died in his presence. His son Abraham, whose name means great father, is childless. And what's more, God hasn't spoken to this chosen line for at least 10 generations. The last time God spoke to this line was to Noah, which is at least 10 generations ago. So a strange silence has been hanging over the story since the Tower of Babel. And so God has us right where he wants us, at the dead end of human ability. And this is where he starts to go to work. Now the call of Abraham comes in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 9. This chapter, we're going to be in it the next two weeks. It could just be divided into two simple parts. Verses 1 through 3, the call of Abraham. Verses 4 through 9, the response of Abraham. And out of this emerge three themes that form the fabric of the rest of the Bible. And the themes are these, calling, faith, and mission. We see here in this biography that a real life is a life that hears the call of God. It's a life that responds by something the Bible will call faith. And this, these two things together, the call of God and the faith of man spill into the mission of God. Calling, faith, and mission. This week I'm going to focus entirely on calling with the remainder of our time. Next week we'll look at Abraham's response. 
and understand better faith and mission. So the rest of our time, I'm just going to address one question with you. What is the call of God? Have you heard the call of God? Would you know it if you heard it? Do you know what it sounds like? You know, um, this idea of hearing a calling, it's not a particularly or exclusively religious idea. Um, You actually hear people talk about it a lot. People will talk about having a calling towards a movement or a career or even a spouse. People may say, um, I feel called to the work of justice. Or I feel called to be a chef. Or I feel called to marry her or to marry him. And what people mean when they say this is that humans can experience a strange and strong pull towards something or someone. And it's as though that thing outside of them is calling them towards it. And having a sense of calling, it it makes life meaningful. It gives it order and aim. It helps you get through the hard times. You know, a life without a call sometimes feels like what feels like not a life at all feels like an aimless wandering, a sad silence, as though there's nothing bigger than ourselves to really live for. Beneath this wiring or this common longing we have to live our life called by something is the way God's designed us. We are designed to be addressed by God. More so than trees and animals, human beings have been made in order to hear and be addressed by God. We are made to hear this calling. And so how do we hear it? What do you have to do? How do you know you're hearing God and not just something in your brain? These are the questions that we're going to take with us into Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3, and watch how this calling of Abraham spreads through the Bible. And I'm just going to set before us three things I think we can see about the call of God. The call of God involves a word from God, not a voice in your head. Second, the call of God involves the capturing of the heart, not just the ascent of the mind. And third, the call of God is the Father's blessing, not a general ordering a mercenary. So the word of God, a captured heart, and a father's blessing. Let me show you how this unfolds. So first, God's call comes through God's word. Um, In Genesis 12, verse 1, we pick up there. um, We read, now the Lord said to Abraham, God's calling him by speaking. Now you should be saying, no big deal, of course. How else are you going to call somebody? You're going to have to speak. But We need to notice, as careful readers of Genesis as we are, who went through Genesis 1 and 2 at this time last year, can you remember the tool God used to make the universe? His word. Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light. God creates the world by speaking by his word. So the careful reader of Genesis is going to think, okay, This speaking God, this is the same instrument and power that created the universe. And therefore, whatever starts to unfold in the story of salvation across Scripture is 
literally the same power that brings about creation. And this is why the things unfolding in Scripture are never ultimately about the power of men and women, although they involve men and women. They're about the power of God to create. And salvation will literally be called a new creation because God is speaking it into existence. So the call begins with the Word of God. Now, there's a little more to this I think we should notice as kind of modern people. We live in a relativistic world where everybody kind of has their own truth. And I think most people, whether they're religious or not, I think they like the idea of hearing a call from God. It's very personal. It gives your life meaning. And I think the way it operates for people is that they would say, you know, I have some sense inside me or I heard a voice um, or I feel an impression when I do something and this is the Lord speaking to me. And, and it's my truth and now... It's authoritative and I have to live by it in order to be authentic to this voice speaking to me. And that may seem like a nice idea, but it actually leads to total disarray. Let me, let me just give you an analogy. You've heard people talk about having the call of the sea. You ever heard people say that or seen it in literature like a sailor? You just feel the call of the sea. Imagine you meet a person who says, I have the call of the sea. It's totally organized my life and orders my life. And you're like, that's awesome. Could I experience it with you? Sure, I'll pick you up tomorrow and we'll experience together the call of the sea. So your friend picks you up and he proceeds not to drive you to the ocean. He drives you to the woods. Get out of the car. You start taking a hike and he's ooing and aahing at how amazing the ocean is. And you say, look, man, I'm not trying to get in your business, but this isn't the ocean. This is the woods. And he says, whoa, 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 whoa. Who are you to tell me what the ocean is? The ocean speaks to me. And this is what it is. What are you, how are you going to tell him he's wrong? Okay, imagine a person who says to you, a little different, I have felt in my life the call of justice. My life has been organized around it. And you're like, man, that's, that's amazing. That sounds really noble. Could I experience it with you? Sure. Comes to pick you up. You're going to experience the call of justice on someone's life. He proceeds to drive you to the local country club, puts out a recliner, gets in his chair, orders an ice cold lemonade, and starts taking in the sun. And talking about how just this is. And you say, well, I, I, I don't mean to be rude, but I don't, how is this justice? He says, whoa, who are you to tell me what justice is? You don't know what I've been through. Justice speaks to me. The God of the universe speaks to me on my mind. And this is me receiving justice, the fairness of being able to relax. This is justice. Now, these examples are silly, except the fact that we do this with God every single day. They take these polls in America, this many people believe in God. I'm always like, well, what? who's God? Millions of people in the world have a sense that God has spoken to them based on an experience they had or based on how they feel. And they're sure that the true God is leading them. And you go to them and say, wow, you're called by God. Can I experience that? Can you show me what it is? And they proceed to take you to hot yoga or to meditation. I'm not making fun of these things. I'm just saying. Pay attention. Read Prince Harry's biography. Like we are now finding God in whatever feeling we have. So, so we better think here. How do you hear the call of God? Is it more than just a voice in your head? The call of God, the way it's heard today, is by the word of God. And this comes to us through the gospel. 
It comes to us through the written words about Jesus. Um, let me show you how this happens for an early church. One of Paul's first letters is to, first Thessalon- is to the church in Thessalonians, probably the earliest document in the New Testament, maybe written 15 years after Jesus ascended to heaven. And if we can get that slide put up, 1 Thessalonians verses 4 through 5. Here's Paul explaining to Christians how the call of God came to them. Let me read this for you. You're going to see two elements here. Paul says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. You could translate chosen, called. He has called you, chosen you. Well, how do you know that, Paul? Verse 5. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. There's two things operating here, and they're operating in an order. First, do you see that the gospel comes in word. Do you see that? And Paul must mean something different by word than experience because he goes on to talk about an experience of power and conviction. So he says it come, the gospel comes in word. What this means is the way the, God, the call of God starts with a person is by hearing that, oh, my, there's one God, really? Yeah, but he came to us as Jesus so we could know him. And he loves you so much that he died for your sins. He actually knows your name. He, he was resurrected from the dead because he's stronger than death. He ascended to heaven and he's in heaven now and his arms are stretched out and he's looking for men and women who want to live the true life. He's calling to him. You want in on that? Let me show you a couple of scriptures. So that, that's the word coming to people. And it sits like kindling in the mind. Now we're going to move on to the spirit in a second. But I just want you to see that the first point is the call of God comes through the objective preaching of the gospel. It's a voice from God, not a voice from inside your head. However, it's more than just objective truth. We all know a lot of people who read all the words in the Bible. They know them far better than I do. Who don't hear the voice of God? They just hear some old dusty document. It doesn't move them. They don't believe a word of it. So it must involve more than just hearing these words. And we're going to see what it means in the second half of this verse from Thessalonians. One image to think of would be how a fire works with kindling and flame. The the kindling would would be, you know, telling your kids or telling your friends about Jesus, bringing them to church, pounding into their head all this kindling that sits there. But for the call to come, something secondary, something else has to happen, and it's the Spirit acting upon that kindling to inflame it. So Paul says this, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, Paul had been speaking the gospel all over the Mediterranean world and plenty of people just walked away. So what he's saying is, I not only told it to you like I did to those people on Mars Hill in Athens or in that synagogue in Corinth. I not only told it to you, but then based on what happened in your lives, a power came upon you. The Holy Spirit fell upon you. And what did it produce? What's the experience he talks about? Full conviction. I love that word. So that's the second thing that happens. This is where I'm getting the phrase, the call of God captures the heart. It's more than mental assent. Has that happened to you? You know, I think um, the way this happens, you know, I, I was drugged to church as a kid every Sunday. So if you're a kid in here being drugged to church, like I got love for you. Um, and my parents were great. They were just pouring that, putting that kindling in, you know. 
And, and it, took, it, it took a long time, right? And I, but I can remember, um, I was thinking about this this week. I remember being in middle school and this, this boy in my class, we're out at recess, he looked up at heaven and he cursed God. You know, little kids will do stuff like this for shock value. And I remember a lot of the kids didn't care. And I remember being like scared. And I don't know why, but for some reason, my little boy mind believed God was really there. And then, you know, later, later in high school, I still was kind of one foot in, one foot out. And then my good friend Ethan Line decided to have this radical conversion and be all in for Jesus. And at the spring girls' soccer games that we'd go to, Ethan would bring his Bible and he'd sit there reading his Bible and it would embarrass me so I wouldn't sit with him. But I was, I was like, I was getting convicted. Like it mattered. I couldn't stop thinking about what's happening in his life. And then college comes along and I'm in one foot in, one foot out, in and out of a fraternity and, and I can't quite figure out what's going on. And then I'm listening to a sermon in my dad's car one day. I'm driving his car, it's on a CD player. And this preacher's telling the story of his life, coming to know the Lord. And, and the preacher's talking about a, a season in his 20s. And he, said, he says this phrase. He says, and he said, I just knew. I said to God, he said, I wanna be that man that is for you, Lord. And it was like the light went on. And I was like, that's it. I cannot not be that. There's a lot of other things I want, but I can't not be that. I want to be that man that's for you, Lord. And it was like all that kindling suddenly was burning with fire. And it changed my life. Now look, that fire goes up and down. It's not always hot like that, but have you felt something like that? I mean, do, do you live under the call of God? Has it captured your heart? That's the second thing that happens with the call. Third and finally, um, the call of God involves the word of God, the spirit capturing the heart. And third, it's the father's blessing. It's not a general commanding a mercenary. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, in, in Genesis 12, verses 2 through 3, God fills out the calling with a promised blessing, and he uses the word blessing or bless five times in these two verses. That's only significant because the word blessing is used five times, only five times, over the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And these, you know, Moses is such a careful writer. And all of a sudden it explodes like buckshot. And so we read, picking up at verse 2, I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, the blessing of God is a very precious thing. He announces his blessing over Adam and Eve at the beginning, and I, I picture almost like an old grandfather dying in his bed, and a little great-grandson's brought in, and this is his one moment. And, and of all the things he could do, he just wants to put his hands on the child and with everything he's got, he just says, I bless you. God Almighty, bless him, bless her. The blessing of God is not the gift of an easy life. Friends, did you notice Abraham's dealing with barrenness? And that his life is going to be way harder because of the call of God, not easier. The blessing of God is the gift of a meaningful life. Abraham could live in the cul-de-sac in the suburbs of Ur of the Chaldeans and have a nice life. And it would be worthless unless he hears the call of God. The call of God comes on your life as a blessing because he says, that which is true, good, and beautiful, I'm going to draw it through your life and it's going to shine on into eternity. And you are my woman or you are my man for this. And I bless you. 
And you know, it's interesting when Paul's trying to explain this to another New Testament church, the church in Galatia, the, the Galatians letter, he, he tells them, and we already read this earlier in um, Galatians 3 verse 29, he tells them, look, if you're in Christ, you're Abraham's offspring. And like, that's amazing because we're Gentiles. We thought you had to be Jewish. That's great. So they're in on the blessing by faith. So he says, you're sons and daughters of Abraham, you're children of Abraham. But then he goes on in, in, in chapter 4 of Galatians to say, you're not just sons of Abraham. Notice what he says. This is Galatians 4 verse 6. He says, God has sent his, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son When the call of God comes on your life, because we're Washingtonians and we're type A and we're building resumes, the first question we ask is, what do you want me to do? Are you calling me to be a dentist, a doctor, a pilot, fireman, stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home dad? Just tell me, what's the description? Give me my marching orders. And believe me, that comes. God has its stuff for Abraham to do, and we're going to get to that next week. But prior to any doing, the call of God is to a state of being. He says, I'm calling you to be mine. And if, if you do nothing else in your life, I just want you to be my son or my daughter. And we say, whatever comes next, I'm, I'm founding this life on this fact, just like Abraham did. I am that man or I am that woman for you, Lord. And just as God spoke over his sons, you hear or his son, Jesus, you hear this. It's almost like Abraham's call is the hand of the Lord coming out of heaven into the darkness of Babylon, alighting upon the shoulder of this poor lost man at 75 years old and saying to him, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Abraham, I bless you. Son, I bless you. And now I'm sending you forth to be a blessing. So let me close by just asking you, um, do you live a callless life? Just listening to various voices. Do you live a callless life? Have you heard the call of God on your life? If you have, thank God for it and share it with someone. If you have kids, Tell them about it. Because for the rest of the Bible, God's going to introduce himself to Abraham's kids by saying this. I'm the God of your father. God's call often comes to us through our parents. Parents, tell your kids about the call of God. Put kindling there. You can't light the fire, but you can keep putting kindling in. And if you haven't heard the call of God, I have good news for you. You may be thinking, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I'm a sinner. Abraham was a pagan. And Abraham, but look guys, by chapter 13, he's lying about Sarah being his wife. In other words, it doesn't call, come to the perfect. It comes to the needy. All you have to do is feel like you're a little bit unworthy and you're a great candidate. <laughs> and all you need to do, if you haven't heard the, heard the call of God, here's what you need to do. Start to listen. Make space to listen. Maybe take a lunch break this week and instead of going to Chipotle, find a little church that's open. Maybe you're downtown and go in it for lunch break and just kneel down and say, God, I want to hear your call. I want to be that woman that's for you, Lord. 
Or maybe, maybe um, take a walk in the woods, take a little bit of scripture with you and just try to spend time with God. Listen. You know, the call of God, Elijah said, for him it was a still small voice. Little Samuel, he at first didn't recognize it when it came. He needed help from Eli to know what it was. It comes in different ways. But you need to start to listen. Lord, um, we thank you for the call of Abraham. We thank you for this life that's set before us. And God, I pray that we would hear your voice and it would shake us to the very foundations of this church. And we would be those men and those women that are for you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.